0: Uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn now to Exodus chapter 12, and we'll begin reading in verse 43 in, in just a few moments. A couple of weeks ago, we were in the midst of chapter 12, which brought us to the much-anticipated 10th plague where the Lord sends his destroyer into Egypt to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. All those who were not covered by the blood of the lamb on the doorposts were killed. And what a horrific and terrible and terrifying experience. We we noted all of that. And as a result of the tenth plague and the plagues leading up to it, as the Lord had told them, the exodus of God's people from Egypt has begun. Right? Pharaoh lets them go, and Egypt pushes them out hastily. You must leave. So we're talking even in the middle of the night. They are gathering their supplies. They're understanding now the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We don't have time for the bread to rise. We have to get out of here. They are able to take the spoils of, of the war, in a sense, as victors, as God has given them favor. They took gold and silver in clothing, all that they could, all that they could carry. And the last time together we took these two great themes of that judgment, right, of the tenth plague and, and the deliverance that is found in God delivering his people out of, out of Egypt and we zoomed way out and we saw how those themes run through all of salvation history that the Lord God Almighty brings about salvation through judgment to his glory and here in exodus is one of those great peaks here in chapter 12 but ultimately we see the greatest peak of this theme of the cross of jesus christ i encourage you if you haven't if you weren't here to listen that to message on the website you can go back and and listen to it um, we're going to zoom back in now though to the text and and we're going to get started and we have a lot to do so let's get let's get started there in verse 43 of chapter 12. Would you look with me? And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And if a stranger shall sojourn with you and keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native as the of, native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. And there shall be one law for the native, and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me the first bo- all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you out into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service In this month seven days shall eat unleavened bread and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the lord unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days no leavened bread shall be eaten shall be seen with you and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory you shall tell your son on that day it is because of what the lord did for me when i came out of egypt it shall be a sign on your hand. And a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You therefore keep this statute at its, at its appointed time for year to year. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, you shall, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord... All the first that opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of the donkey shall be redeemed with the lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, shall break its neck. Every firstborn man among your sons you shall redeem. And then, and when in time to come, your sons ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to him by a strong hand, The Lord has brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males, all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I shall redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord, and may His Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear, to see His holy, inspired, and inerrant word for His glory and our joy. Amen. One of the struggles that I often come across in, in preaching week in and week out, especially when preaching historical narratives, particularly I'm seeing it here in Exodus, is is not trying to sound repetitive, right? Not trying to say the the same thing over and over again, the same points, the same thoughts, the same themes, the same ideas over and over again. Now, it may not seem that way to to you, but to me, maybe because I'm immersed in the text all week and have been studying Exodus now for, uh, for months now, probably well over a year now to me, uh, sometimes I can sound repetitive, uh, pastors. Though we're we're human too, and we want to preach good sermons, and we want to uh, we want to 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 be relevant with fresh, without compromising the sufficiency of of God's word. And so when we read again another telling of the command to Israel to keep to observe and to remember this this new institution of the Passover and the. Feast of Unloving Bread, I I question myself reading this text. I'm like, what more can be said? I've preached this text for a few weeks now, it seems like. How, How can I not be repetitive without just making something up? I don't want to do that. But we and I were gently reminded this week that this is God's Word, that it is holy, that it's inspired, that it's God's Word, which means that even in the repetition and the repetition that it's profitable for my growth for my sanctification for my edification as much as it is much as it is for yours for your growth for your training for your correction and for our spiritual formation in our lord jesus christ so though not named in the text christ is all over this passage certainly as our author, but as these different theological types and fulfillments within this passage. There is a rich theological beauty that is built right into these repetitive passages. I said earlier for for weeks, I've been saying over and over that we cannot stress enough the the massive importance of the Passover and the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Right? Because not only historically, but but also understanding where our salvation comes from, where it's built upon. And so to celebrate the Passover was for them to, to recall of God's great work of salvation of his people throughout history, to mem to remember it, to remember it and to memorialize it. Now we don't celebrate the Passover, we talked about that. But we do, gathering, we celebrate the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ every Sunday. As the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, that Christ is our Passover lamb. The true story of of Israel's escape from Egypt demonstrates to us some great doctrines of the Christian faith. Let me just highlight some of those that we've, we've been going through. We've, we've learned much about sin and judgment, right? For, for God sent plagues against Egypt. He was judging them for their sin. We've learned much. We've gained much about the doctrine of God. That he is sovereign as creator and sovereign over man. And, and in his sovereign grace, he has elected, has his election of his people why did god rescue the israelites because they were the people of his choice and in the passover we explicitly see substitutionary atonement they are saved they are literally passed over by the blood of the lamb that was offered in their place we see the idea of propitiation come out Because the blood turned aside the wrath of God. Here's another. We see the communion of the saints. We'll talk more about that today. That God's people shared the Passover together. And as they did, they remembered together the salvation that God had richly provided. We see even sanctification in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because God told them to sweep out the yeast which of of all of their lives, and we saw in our passage, in all of their territory. None of these things, none of that should be anywhere near them, because it's a representation of the old life of, of sin in the old world. Another pillar of soteriology we see introduced here in chapter 13 is the doctrine of redemption, which we'll spend time this morning in. And so we're getting almost almost a complete theological education right here in these chapters of Exodus. And maybe that is the point of all of this repetition. Maybe that's why we're to read this. And we're like, did I read this already? Then Ben preached this already. Maybe we're we're meant to see it because we need to hear over and over and over again the richness and the beauty of these wonderful doctrines that God has just woven throughout his Bible for us to see. And so this morning, I want to I I bring together two important theological points from this text this morning, um, in, in which, by the way, this, this sermon is pretty much just a, a very long, extended introduction to the Lord's Supper. That's what this is. Okay? So in these two theological points, man, we are, we are leading up to what we are going to do right here. Okay? So keep that, keep that in mind. So the first point is, is, once again, we see a theology of remembrance. Now you may not, I don't know if you'll find that in those fancy systematic theologies or not. But I see this as a theology of remembrance. In verses, in verses 43 through 51 in chapter 12, and in, in chapter 13, 3 through 10, again, we hear the description once again of the institution of the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. Now remember, just as a, quite, just a quick remi- uh, reminder, right? The, the Passover was about remembering how God had passed them over in judgment right God had spared them they deserved wrath they deserved judgment but by God's grace and his infinite mercy he had provided a a lamb a passover lamb to to cover them so that they would not be killed by the destroyer because of their sin right so God passes them over by the spotless blood of the lamb the feast of unleavened bread however which they go, they go right together, commemorates the hastiness of their deliverance, how God has delivered them out of slavery. I mean, this cell should be ringing little red lights just flashing and red flags flowing all in our minds, that this all sounds like gospel words, like slavery and freedom and deliverance and lamb. I mean, these things should be just going off for us when we, when we read passages like this. Now, there's definitely some repetition, and we're, we're not going to spend too much on the things that we've already known, but we're going to look at some of the details and the regulations about these meals that are given to us that are different, that they're supposed to observe every year without fail. So let me point out some of the highlights of the description. First, notice in verses 46 and 47, the emphasis of, the, the, of this meal, again, is a community event, and I think it gives us even more detail than it has before. Right? It started out in verse 3 that this is for your, for your family, but here it draws in the community. It draws more people into, into, your, into your homes. Verse 47, it says, all the congregations of Israel. And so this is, not, this, uh, not only is this point being stressed here, but it's a point that's being stressed throughout all of chapters 12 and all of Exodus. It says that there's one lamb per household, but to invite more in so that there is no leftovers. So if there is no, remember they're supposed to. If there's anything left over, they're supposed to burn it. But let's not waste anything. If you have a small family or if you have a mid-sized family and you got a lamb, and you know that that can feed you and another family, invite another family in to be a part of that meal. Meaning we are eating together. They are all eating together. They are bringing people into their home. The bones of the lamb are are not to be broken or separated. And there's a symbolic significance, again, of the no division among the people, but unity. And just as a, a hermeneutical note here, the Apostle John quotes this verse in reference to Jesus on the cross as none of his bones were broken. Now, just again, as a hermeneutical note, Moses' intent here is not prophecy. That's not Moses' intent here, but rather what we see is John is rightly understanding, and he's rightly affirming what Paul just flats out says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that Jesus is the Passover lamb. That's what's being said there, that Jesus is the Passover lamb. And so like the Passover lamb, Jesus' bones were not broken. And so the, the whole point for them in this is that everyone in the covenant community is to be participating together. There is a, a drawing together of unity. This isn't just an individual event, but it's a communal event. And so we understand then from this that a right theology of remembrance draws us in together in unity. You know, it's, it's, unfor- it's unfortunate that, that in our Christian culture that so many Um, think that salvation is entirely based upon these individual terms. It's it's kind of unfortunate. You've heard phrases like personal relationship with Jesus. You've heard words like that. You've heard phrases that you you can have a personal relationship with with Jesus, or I have a personal relationship with Jesus, or, or Christianity is about what God has done for me. Now, I don't want you to think that Christianity or the, or the gospel is not personal because it very much is personal. It's very personal. In fact, it's so personal, it's so personal that it changes us internally, right? I mean, it's personal in the sense that it, it changes us internally from the inside out. I mean, there's, there's nothing more personal than that. However, when these phrases are often used, like personal relationship with Jesus or personal relationship with Christ or, or Christianity is about my relationship with him only or just about me, it, it's what often what it is, it becomes the mantra of those who do not want any accountability or, want, or, or do, want, do not want any obligation or, or duty or service to others or any kind of commitment to others. And so, yes, by God's grace, he saves us individually, as individuals, out of sin and out of death. But he does so in order to do what? But to bring you in. He delivers you out to bring you in and into his family. To unite you with his church, with his people, with this communion of saints. And so that's all of us, those who are in Christ, those who are in Jesus Christ. We have have something greater than anything else in this world. We have more in common with our brothers and sisters in this room this morning than we do with the rest of the world. And that is that we are covered by the blood of the Lamb of God. And in salvation in the work of Christ in the work of the, the holy spirit god has joined us together he has brought us together not to do this alone i'll give you a biblical example of this he says in in, in titus chapter 3 four, 4 through 7 when the dark when the excuse me when the kindness and love of god our savior appeared he saved us right okay listen to listen to these right not because of the righteous things we have done but because of his mercy he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the holy spirit whom he poured out on us generously through jesus christ our savior so that having been justified by his grace we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life let me see that there's not just there's no there's no eyes there there's us and and we salvation again it is personal but it unites us corporately which is why hebrews ten twenty five says we are not to neglect meeting together the passover united them as one community that's what it's for you're this is one community in their salvation god saved you Together. And guess what? We do the same thing when we gather and when we share in the Lord's table. We come together and we recognize yes, this is very much the most personal thing in my life, but it's together. It's together as as the church. And this meal is powerful. And a profound symbol of our unity and our community together as a congregation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. Is it not in participation in the blood or the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. Listen. We who are many are one body, one, for we all partake of the one bread. This isn't a personal meal. This isn't takeout. Take it and go, right? This is why we, we, we don't take the Lord's Supper at home when you're doing your quiet times individually. You don't, we don't do that. You don't do that. But this is by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Those who eat and drink of the cup, we are spiritually connected as, as the church, as the bride of Christ, united in him as one body. Let's look at another facet of this meal that's explained for us. In verses 43 through 45, the Lord is making it very clear who can and who is not to participate in the Passover. He says, no foreigner, no slave, no hired worker, no stranger, who is a sojourner through the land. Meaning, if you are not an Israelite, and you do not bear the sign of the covenant, then you are not to take of the Passover. Now, I think that this is put here, explicitly in this repetition, because if you remember previously, when they left the land, there was, a, there was a, quite a bit of a host of people that went with them. People who were not a part of their group. who were not Israelites that went with them. And the Lord is commanding them. He is telling them, there is a distinction. They can go with you, but there is a distinction between you and them. As he has already been laying out this distinction throughout Exodus. The distinction between his people and Egypt. And we still do the same thing. We still do the same thing in in the church. In fact, we are commanded by Scripture to do so. We maintain as as a church, biblical church membership, that only baptized believers can be church members. And then visibly, when we come to the Lord's table, that that is shown. The Lord's Supper is, listen, the Lord's Supper almost by by its very definition is exclusive or a better word maybe would be discriminatory. It discriminates by its very nature because it's marking off to the world and to those who are watching who are not of Christ to see who is in and who is not. Right? This is what 1 Corinthians 11 is warning about in verses 27-29. Verse he says, Whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, unworthy manner, not among the body, will be guilty concerning the body of the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body being a part of the body. Eats and drinks judgment on himself. Listen, it is inappropriate. And it is even dangerous. Drinks judgment on himself. It is dangerous for an unbeliever to participate in the Lord's Supper. It marks us off. This is God for God's people. But, but, there is a way for those to be able to participate in the Passover as it says in the text, as it is in the church. In verse 44, look what it says. But every slave that is bought for money may eat it after, speaking of the Passover, after you have circumcised him. Verse 48, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and keep the Passover to the Lord, let all of his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So what's the sign? What's the distinction in the old, the, that's being made? The distinction of the Old Testament is the sign of circumcision. The sign goes all the way back to Abraham when, when God told Abraham to, to be circumcised and to circumcise all of his, all of his, his men and his followers, and to circumcise his son when he was born. This is why way back, if you remember back in Exodus, why it was such a big deal. Like God almost killed Moses because he didn't sacrifice one of his sons. Sacrifice. Circumcised. One of his sons. It was a big deal because he, was not, he didn't have the sign of the covenant. But he says if they are circumcised, it sounds to me that they can join right in. If you're circumcised, then you can join right into this, into the covenant community. It's like, it's almost like he's saying, by by God's grace, he is he's offering inclusion to them, to everyone who comes by faith in God, the God of Israel, and circumcision was the the way of showing that you trust in this promise of salvation. Now we have to understand that if there was a sojourner and a foreigner or A slave or a hired hand that was in the land, and they see these guys eating the feast, and they may ask, hey, why can't I take part of the feast? If they only just wanted to eat, guess what they would not have done? They wouldn't have got circumcised, right? Do I need to explain to you all all of that, right? What circumcision is, right? They're they're not gonna be like, oh man, I'm, I'm so hungry that I'm willing to do that. It would ruin your meal right that would totally ruin the meal but if they believed by faith that the god of israel had delivered them out of egypt with a mighty hand then the seeing that meal they're going to want to participate by faith they're going to receive circumcision this is pointing to salvation Salvation for them, but pointing to salvation to us. Now salvation for us, praise God, is not by the sign of the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. The circumcision of the heart by which the the Holy Spirit does in faith, as we have faith in Jesus Christ. So again, the, the outward sign that we're given is not circumcision, It's the circumcision of the heart, which is then expressed as every believer who comes to the Lord's table. Let's keep going in chapter 13. We're drawn in more to this theology of remembrance. In verse 3, he gets right to the point. He says, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, by a strong hand, I love that, the Lord has brought you out of this place. Love that, this place, like almost like there's disdain. Brought you out of that mire, out of that muck, out of that slavery. Now we already know that the Lord has told them that this is a feast that is to be remembered and memorialized, right? It was the Lord who brought you out of slavery. And this is why the unleavened bread, again, is is just so symbolic. It's so significant in this seven-day meal, because of this God of faith, of this God who is faithful in keeping his promise, you see it day after day, after day after day, that this God who made this promise has now delivered his people. But then when we look to Christ, he came, and he inaugurated a new covenant. and he also gave us a meal, didn't he? A meal we've been referencing almost all morning, right? A meal that we were looking forward to taking today. A meal that is what? A meal of remembering and memorializing. Memorializing what? Our deliverance out of Egypt? No. Even greater. Our deliverance out of sin and death. And out of the chains of sin and death. I mean, did, you not, did you not hear Did you not hear that confession this morning about sanctification? That's what he accomplishes. That's the deliverance. And Christ reminds us with these simple features of bread and wine. God often presents to us the benefits of salvation to us in the form of a meal. And he does so for us to be reminded the lord's supper is is simple i mean we this is this is all the food here right and drink that's gonna feed us all it's very simple little bits of bread and tiny cups of juice but each time we take it it helps us understand the gospel visibly it helps us understand visibly by by, by making the salvation something that you can see and something that you can touch and something that, that is, is so real that you can taste it. Here's our evidence, right? We can see, that we can we taste, and that we can know. And the more that we study the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and for that matter, the Passover, the more we understand and realize that, that these meals, these, they were great mystery. They were a great mystery. And for that reason, they were not simply a meal just to share, but they are a meal to explain. Right? It's a meal to, to explain to the, to the people and to their children. And same goes for the Lord's Supper that we'll be taking this morning. It's profound and it's mysterious, but it's physical and spiritual. And so we need to talk about it, which is exactly what we do every time we take of the Lord's Supper, the Lord commands it to them in verse 8 to tell their sons on this day that it is because of what the Lord had done, had did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you a sign on your head and a memorial between your eyes and the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. I said this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing that the Lord just builds right into the the DNA of our children, curiosity. You guys remember when I said that? They build right into the DNA of curiosity of what and and why. Children ask a lot of questions. And let me tell you, children ask a lot of questions on rainy days, by the way. Like yesterday. I must have been hit with a thousand questions yesterday. Per child. What and why? They're so inquisitive. And God, in his mercy, gave parents to their children. Right? He instituted this. Right? He, inst- he instituted the family. He created this. This is by his design that children are to have parents. And parents are to tell their children of the Lord. To answer the questions to the next generation. To tell them why and what we are doing every sunday and i think i've, I've mentioned this several times you but there's there's really not a, a sunday that goes by that when we take in the lord's supper there's not one of my children that asks what's going on can i have some you know that kind of thing and that opens up the door right to not only remember but to tell them this is why i take the lord's supper this is why we take the lord's supper together do y'all, some of y'all with your children that have grown up, do you remember telling them that? Do you remember explaining to them when they sat between you and you passed the plate right over them, right? You passed the plate and they're like, Wait, what? And you got to explain to them and answer to them and tell them of the grace and mercy and glories of Jesus Christ. We bring them along with us and we are explaining to them and showing them the gospel so that Lord willing, they will believe and have faith in Jesus Christ. And as parents, listen to me here, as parents, this too is an act of faith, isn't it? This is an act of faith and trusting in the sovereignty of God that by His design, He has put them there. To see these things, to experience this, to watch the church take these things, to watch... Uh, brother Richard to take the Lord's Supper, to watch Patrick take the Lord's Supper, watch Elizabeth and, and brother Dick and Miss Debbie take these things. And they're like, why is everyone else taking you but me? And by God's design, the next generation is, is, is watching them, watching you. And we get to show them the joy of knowing Follow, of following Jesus Christ. And we're trusting in the sovereignty of God that if it be His will, He would be using those things, planting these little tiny seeds into their tiny little hearts to draw them to Himself. That's faith. That's faith. And we can trust in His sovereign God that He will do that. I'm preaching almost as a daddy here. This is a theology of remembrance that's built right into our liturgy as the church. But it's not just looking backwards, it's also looking forward generationally, isn't it? It's looking forward generationally. And there's Jesus in the upper room before he's arrested. He institutes this this supper. He institutes this supper for us to what? to remember and to memorialize what he has done on the cross. And brothers and sisters, as simple as it is, what a a profound way that we get to remember him. We need this remembrance. And we need this remembrance all the time and in so many ways. And by his infinite mercy, he has provided for us the Passover lamb. The second point that I want us to see this morning, and really it, it, it tags right on to the theology of remembrance, is a theology of redemption. B.B. Warfield said, there is no one of the titles of Christ in which more precious to, Jesus, precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. It gives expression, not merely to our sense that we have received salvation from him, but also to our appreciation of what it costs him to procure this salvation for us. And when we think about this word redemption, what quickly comes to mind, what should quickly come to our minds is the cross. The cross of, of Jesus Christ, and we and we think of Him, don't we? Right, we're not just merely the cross, some inanimate object of a jewelry or or some kind of ornate piece, but we think of the cross and we think of Christ's sacrifice on the cross as redeemer. And as Bibi Warfel said, then we then we appreciate right in our hearts and in our souls and our minds and in our eyes, like we we appreciate the cost. That he gave of, of securing our salvation. And in redemption and Exodus, redemption has become, has become this theme of the Passover lamb. This is why we were just told to, to put it as frontlets in your eyes and on your, your foreheads. That it, this this idea of God's deliverance and redemption is always before you. But this idea of redemption then goes further past the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread to another very special tradition that begins in recognizing that the firstborn son belongs to the Lord. Chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both both of man and of beast, is mine. The act of consecrating is a setting apart. That's a special setting apart. And he says here that this uh, all of the firstborn of Israel. Now this is not new language for us, is it, right? Firstborn? Where does this connect us back to? Well, right back to the 10th plague, doesn't it? The 10th plague. The death of all the firstborn of, of Egypt. And also to the fact that the Lord has called Israel his firstborn his firstborn son. The significance of a firstborn in a family would represent the whole family, right? The firstborn child, the firstborn son would represent the whole family, and when you consecrate your firstborn to the the Lord, you are saying collectively as this family that our family belongs to you, O Lord. Well, what does that mean, or what does that mean, what does that look like exactly? Well, he tells us in verse 13, Every firstborn of the donkey shall be redeemed with the lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn man among your sons you shall redeem. So the firstborn of animals, they are to be redeemed. Or they are to be sacrificed. If you can't redeem them, if you can't consecrate them with an offering, then you are to sacrifice them. We see the rest of the Bible talk about the first fruits, right? The first fruits are to be, of the harvest are to be given over to the Lord as a sacrifice. He mentioned specifically, here, and I think this is pretty funny, that he mentioned donkeys. Where do donkeys come from? Out of all the animals, why donkeys? Well, I think they're specifically listed here for two things. Number one, I think they're all pretty much riding donkeys and using donkeys as they're leaving, leaving Egypt, aren't they? They're a pretty important beast of burden back then. But also, donkeys, as being a pretty important animal that they're using, donkeys are considered an unclean animal. So if we have this this donkey that's born that we're supposed to consecrate to the Lord, we can't sacrifice it if it's unclean. It's an unclean animal. So what does he tell them to do? If you can't redeem it, you can't sacrifice it, so you have to break its neck. How do you redeem the donkey? With the lamb but then he gets to the sons are, are, are the sons to be sacrificed the answer to that question is no right the Lord says to redeem them instead now isn't it interesting again that donkeys and sons are in the same category isn't it donkeys and sons in the same category like donkeys sons are unclean sons are unclean but they still belong to God, and they need to be redeemed with a price. Now, Exodus doesn't tell us the price it costs to, to redeem sons like it does donkeys, but perhaps they did use the lamb, but in Numbers 18, it does. Numbers 18 tells us that, that the price of redemption for the son was five shekels of silver. Now, fast-forwarding, I'm just trying to help you understand some more of the Scripture, fast-forwarding to the New Testament in the Gospels when Mary and Joseph took baby Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem this is why they dedicated him to the Lord they consecrated him unto the Lord remember it says they were devout and loved the Lord and faithful to the Lord now Jesus didn't need to be redeemed he wasn't unclean like the rest of the sons but it was necessary for him to fulfill all the requirements of the law so no matter, no no wonder then the the rest of our passage and this t- passage is telling us in verses 14 through 16 that our children again are going to ask again right so so again right right with the meal like the god builds right within the liturgy of the people for children to be brought along The next generation is to be brought along. They're going to ask questions. And I think in particular the sons, when they're taken up to the thing, what's going on here? Why is this happening? And you're to tell them again of the Lord's faithfulness to keep his promises and the required sacrifice to redeem you. Son, this dove, these shekels, this lamb is given for you. Is given for you. And again, in Christian homes, we we present, we we teach, we disciple, we live out, we give, we, we transfer gospel hope to them. We show them an identity that is in Christ. And as parents and even as church members, they're, they're here, they're watching, and we, we want to pray for these children because guess what? We have greater hopes for them than they do. A greater hope for them to be in Christ and to follow Jesus and to be satisfied in Him Alone and to be forgiven and to know what it feels like to have that kind of identity is massively important. Massively important. And our I mean, one of the, the tragedies of our day is that kids and children have they have no foundation over any kind of worldview. The the implicit worldview within our culture used to be that there is a creator and he has created you. That's gone. I mean, that one worldview itself would would at least bring some kind of settling in a person's life, and particularly a child's life, because it means you have value, you have worth, you're created in the imago Dei, but that's gone. That's gone. Morality and ethics is now just about you're, you determining them yourself. Thoughts, ideas, and identities have been shaped, listen to this, have been shaped by the algorithms of social media. And we see now the outcome of that is a generation of people who have no idea who they are. And it shows. And, and, and I... And I and i want to, I want to encourage y'all that before you laugh, weep, because they are also children made in the image of God, that have real souls, and that without Christ'll we'll we experience a real eternal damnation in hell eternally. And so we pray the horrific effects of having absolutely no foundation, no identity on this culture as a whole is prevalent. But that's not the case here as the church, is it? That our children are to learn that they have a purpose in this life. That they are to live and can live to the, to the glory of God. And that someone has paid a price, has paid a price for their sin. That a redeemer has come. The theology of redemption means that the price has been paid for another. The price has been paid amazingly by the very Son of God, the firstborn of the Father, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1:15 says that he is the firstborn of creation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 says that he is the firstborn of creation. Of all Now this doesn't mean that Jesus isn't eternal, but rather Jesus is God's one and only Son, and that He offered him up. listen that God then offered his Son, his firstborn, so that we could be redeemed. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also give him graciously all things? This is the price of our redemption. The redemption to be born again is by the blood of God's firstborn son. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 through 19 says, knowing that you were ransomed from futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I think Peter got it, didn't he? Do you see the emphasis in that text on the cost? Look at the emphasis on the cost of our redemption, the precious blood of Christ. I, can't, I cannot think of a greater usage of that word, precious, than in that context. What else can be more precious than the blood of Jesus Christ? Now this is all information in a lot of ways that we know. We know Jesus is our Redeemer, but do we know the implications of this. The first implication of that is that we've been saved, right? We've been saved. There's the transaction of being being once being in sin, but now being saved. But also, it also means that if if we have been bought with such a price, then that means that we are no longer our own, but belong to God. Speaking in the context of sin, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this. He says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have have from God. You are not your own. You are not your own, but you have been bought with what? A price. As Peter says, with the precious blood of Christ. So glorify God in your body. So because of the cost, the blood of Christ, that means then the demand on our life is what? That we are not our own. The demand is, is very high, isn't it? Jesus says, come and die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me daily. The act of understanding of our redemption and remembrance of these things is like we're coming to die of ourselves. We don't come here as people who are fully boasting in ourselves, but we come as people who have died to ourselves, but yet alive in Christ. We've we've been humbled to understand that. And so with that demand being on us, and that such a high demand being on us, We need to also understand that that in that demand, as high as that is, we still understand that built within this, as Christ as our Redeemer, that it is our only source of security and our hope. The Heidelberg Catechism asks this, I believe in the first question. It says, what is our only hope in life and death? Answer, that I with body and soul, both in life and death, not my own but belong unto my faithful savior jesus christ who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me without the will of my heavenly or with me with the heavenly father not an air can fall from my head yes not a hair can fall from my head yes that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready to live unto him. If we belong to him and we are not our own, then listen to what that, what that just said. Then that means that we are forgiven, we are reconciled, we are delivered, and we are saved Forever in the hands of a sovereign, loving, heavenly Father. And I want to give you one more implication. implication. If Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers, Romans 8:29, and as Hebrews 12 23 says, to the assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, then listen: the church who are enrolled in heaven not only belong to Christ, but we also belong to each other. Redemption has accomplished our adoption as sons, but as I said from the very beginning, as sons into a family, into the family of God. And one of my one of my favorite passages to uh, speaks of this. One of my favorite passages all the Bible, uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse thirteen. It says this. It's going to be up on the screen. Read it with me. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ, right? So there's, there is redemption right there, right? We were once far off, and we needed to be brought new, and by the blood of Christ, he has brought us near. For he himself is our peace who has made us, the church, both one. That's unity, right? That's the, that's the body of Christ. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were far near. For through him, we have both access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? What a testimony that we can, we can see that, that it's broken in all the hostilities between us. It reminds us that we are not alone. But we are together, we are in community, we're in unity with the church by by the Holy Spirit, all because of the redemption of Jesus Christ, by the blood of the Lamb. The evil one, listen, the evil one constantly wants to remind you of all the ways that you should not like one another. He's going to remind you all the ways that you, you should not like this person or, or that person. All the little annoyances are going to, are going to peak and, and highlight why you don't like them or why you shouldn't like them. All the, the differences that you may have right with them are all going to come to the surfaces. All the disagreements, all these small things. You're going to see every fault. You're going to see every failure of, of, of someone else before anything else. That's what the evil one wants to do. But the gospel, by the work of the Holy Spirit and the church, breaks down those things and says, No, you are fellow citizens and saints and are members together in the household of God. And what unites you is greater than anything else that can ever bring people together. Not by the blood of family, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what unites us. That is what our redemption is. The household of God is not this place, but it is with those who are around you this morning. Look what Jesus, our Redeemer, has so gloriously done in us. And I told you this morning, or at the very beginning, that this was going to be an extended introduction to the Lord's Supper this morning, and I meant it. We have a theology of remembrance because we have a theology of redemption. And as you take the Lord's Supper this morning, I ask that you would think of Christ, as I'm sure you always do. You think of Christ, and you remember the cross, and you remember the Passover the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who is our Passover lamb. And I'm sure you worship and you delight in him as you should as our redeemer. Please do so. But also think of your brothers and sisters this morning in Christ around you. If you have to, look up and see them. Look around and see them and pray for them. Pray for the unity of this church. Pray that we would continue to be unified in the remembrance of our Savior, in our unified redemption in him. And then lastly, pray for all the little sojourners and big sojourners and foreigners and hired hands that are amongst us. Meaning those who are unbelievers, pray for them. That the Holy Spirit would stir their hearts toward a curiosity and a desire to ask about the gospel, and to ask, why do you do this? And all of God's people say,